Father, our focus now is on you. Our greatest need is to hear from you and do as you say so that we may love as we've been loved. Make all of this count toward that great end. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Today we're beginning a new series. The topic today is one of the toughest anyone could address. It's one of the toughest issues anyone could navigate in their life, and we all have to. On Mother's Day, it's especially appropriate because part of the burden of parenthood is learning to forgive. Because when you love someone and you experience disappointment with them when life does not match the brochure, have you noticed that hardly anything does? The brochure is one thing, the reality is quite another. Resentment creeps in, disappointment, anger, and that great enemy, that number one killer of Christians, bitterness. When you're wounded, when you're hurt, you immediately know it. Because we're made in God's image, that is one of the very first truths we're taught in Scripture. One of the very first things that God reveals to you without explanation as the fundamental fact of the universe, in the beginning, God simply was. He always is. And he made everything that exists and the crown of his creation are human beings and we're made in his image. And one of the evidences that we are made in God's image is we have a moral sense that never leaves us. We know when we've been wronged. If you don't understand or believe that people who are born healthy in the normal course of human development very quickly understand right and wrong, I'd just invite you to go to any preschool and start with the two-year-olds. Two-year-olds know, even before they can express what went wrong, they know that something is wrong, and they make claims of injustice all day long. It's one of the wearisome things of being a parent of young children. There are continuous laments and claims of injustice. In the preschool, the short people ask the tall people to discover along with them that an injustice has been done, and they ask that tall person to come over and make justice fall upon someone their size that is the perpetrator, they, in this case, being the victims, and we instinctively know the difference between right and wrong. So when we're wronged, we ask ourselves, if we're wise, this question, how do I forgive? As we begin this series of tough questions, and I still welcome your questions, whether they regard Scripture itself or a life situation that is encountered by Scripture, this need for forgiveness, my email's in the bulletin. This is the only question I've been asked more than once since I started inviting you to ask. And when someone cares enough to ask and to put their name in print behind the question, I always catch my breath a little bit because it makes me wonder what sort of harm was done to them that they're willing to ask someone else this vulnerable, dangerous question, how do I forgive? And it's inescapable. 
we either live in resentment and develop that bitterness, and bitterness is what happens when the white hot wound that we've been wronged goes on and on, and it moves and settles down into our stomach and becomes icy and settled, and anger turns to bitterness. We all have to deal with it. Because we all experience the world as right and wrong. We know there's a standard somewhere that exists in the world, and we experience life as crooked, as wrong, as twisted when we're wronged. And we know that there's another line that where things are done correctly, and that really is justice. It's the difference between the crooked and what is straight. C.S. Lewis, the brilliant Christian philosopher who began as an atheist and a skeptic, a protester against the very concept of God, came to this realization. It was his lament of injustice that led him to God in the first place. He wrote this, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of cruel and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing the universe with when I called it unjust? So when we're wrong, we just say it simply. We say that's not right. And you start from about to have, you have the use of language as a little child, and it might just be a scream, but what that person is saying is, something has gone wrong in my world, and I want someone somewhere to make it right. Where did we ever get that idea? We got that idea from our creation in the image of God. There's much I could tell you about what it means to be made in the image of God, but this is certainly at the heart of it. Here's what Scripture says regarding God. Colossians 3.25 says, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Here is one of the truths in the universe that you can depend upon. The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Now, let me ask you, does that comfort you? It's the third service I've asked that question. That has always been the reaction. Why is there a mixed kind of nervous murmur when I ask you if this fundamental truth that every wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he or she has done and there is no partiality with God, why does that make you unsettled? Because, well, I'll explain it to you from my point of view. You know what I want for the world? Justice. You know what I want for me? Mercy and forgiveness. I want your wrong to be dealt with. I want you put in your place. When it comes to me, I want mercy. Psalm 7 verse 11 says it even more severely. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. You feel indignation when you watch the local news? I don't recommend watching local news because the creed of the newsroom is if it bleeds, it leads. And they know they can get eyes. They know they can get an audience if they begin with the injustices of the world. And if you're a, if you're a person made in the image of God with a healthy mind, you burn with indignation about the injustices in this world. Here's God's perspective. 
He is a righteous judge, and he is a God who feels indignation every single day. He feels it more deeply. He feels it as a greater burden than you ever could because he sees it all, he knows it all, and he is committed to himself by his great character that every wrongdoer will be repaid and that with God there will be no partiality. That he won't be preferential, that he can't be bought off, he cannot be dissuaded, he will do what is right. As a godly man once asked of God in Scripture, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And the answer is always yes. That's justice. So where does forgiveness come in? Because Scripture upholds forgiveness. It tells you of a God who is both just and merciful. And you've been wronged, and some of you are not particularly comfortable with the topic already because you've already identified the names and the faces of the rascals who have hurt you. And candidly, you don't want to hear about forgiving them. And yet you're told all across Scripture by both commandment and example that part of what it means to follow Jesus is to forgive. How do those two intersect? I owe a lot of my thinking in this sermon. It's something I've mused on and studied and preached for over 20 years. But in this particular sermon, I'm greatly indebted to a woman named Rachel Denhollander. She's a godly Christian woman. She's a mother. She was a competitive gymnast who was placed in the medical care of a moral monster named Dr. Larry Nasser, who used all of the trust that he had been given to abuse about 200 young girls who were brought to him as the world's leading authority on the medical recovery and care of competitive gymnasts. She was the first to speak against his abuse. That's why today he's in prison for the rest of his life. And a few weeks ago, she dealt with this difficult topic at Harvard University. How do we bring justice and forgiveness together? If we want justice, if we crave justice, if God is just and yet we are told to forgive, however in the world does that work? Well, we have to define terms. First of all, let me tell you, what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is simply this. Forgiveness is my choice, my personal commitment to give up my resentment and my claim to retaliation. That's what forgiveness is. It's both a moment-in-time decision and it is a disposition, an attitude that you can cultivate for life. When you are wronged, you give up your resentment and you give up your claim to retaliation. On the street, it sounds like this. You hurt me, but I won't hurt you back. I'll release you from the rightful claim I have to settle this score. Over and over again in Scripture, we're told as followers of Jesus that this is to characterize our life. Ephesians 4.32 puts this responsibility on Christians and the Christians who read this for the first time in this letter that Paul wrote the Ephesian church were baby Christians. They had just started following Jesus. They had been saved out of a culture so wicked and so dark that it makes ours look like a Sunday school class. And yet this, they are told this is how they are to live. And notice the connection between bitterness and forgiveness that Paul's going to make in this simple instruction he gives these new believers in Jesus. Read it with me, will you? Ephesians 4.32 says, 
let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. The person who is following Jesus is to be done with, is to put away things like bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander. Those are the things that are occasioned when people mistreat and hurt and harm each other. We are to be kind instead, Paul says, kind to one another, tenderhearted. We are to forgive each other on this basis, and this is our standard. Forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And someone will say, well, Bruce, you may have missed a really basic Bible interpretation point. That's a letter written to a Christian church. Christians are to treat each other that way. But what about these people outside the faith? What about the people who don't even believe in God? What about the people who hate God and hate me along with them? What about people who are not asking for forgiveness? What about them? Paul's really just giving into detail on the, one of the basic things that Jesus taught all of his followers as one of their obligations and gifts that they could extend to others once they began following him as Savior. I know this is true because it is in the heart of the Lord's Prayer. When the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray and when Jesus taught the crowds what it meant to be one of his followers, this is the fundamental way, this is the outline, the model prayer he gave them. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 6 says, this is how Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. You may remember the Lord's Prayer it's just one request after another for God. It's simple things like this. Give us our daily bread. Lead us not into temptation. It's just a series of basic needs that can and should be brought to God. As I read the simple Lord's Prayer and all of its economy of words, I notice something immediate. This is the only request that we're taught to bring to God that has a responsibility that turns and looks back at us. I can ask God for my daily bread, and no mention is made of the needs of others. I know they have them, but I'm just to come to God and say, give me today what I need for my daily provision. This request alone comes with a responsibility for the disciple. Here's the request, forgive us our debts. Because every person who sins, every person who wounds their conscience, and every single one of us have, if you were to make a moral fearless a fearless moral inventory, you would know today that you have done things that offended your own conscience this week. Isn't it true? Say, I wish I wouldn't have said that. I wish I wouldn't have done that. I have to stop being this way. Have you had any of those conversations? I've talked to myself that way this morning alone about half a dozen times. And I've told myself, stop, just, just stop. And I've said back to myself, but I can't. This is the way I am. Well, I need you to quit. And I'm having this internal struggle about between the man I actually am and the man I someday aspire to be. That's the human condition. Why? Because we're made gloriously in God's image, but we all fall short of that standard. 
So Jesus teaches us to pray to God, forgive us our debts, and then he teaches in the same breath for that disciple to say to God, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Who are they? Anyone who has a debt with us. It's so big, in fact, that it's the only part of the prayer that Jesus circles back to and teaches. The Lord's prayer ends. The last request is to be guided and to be kept out of temptation and to be delivered from evil. And that's the end of the Lord's Prayer, and typically that's as far as it's taught. I wish people would notice that as soon as he's done praying as an example to the disciples, he circles back to this request and teaches them more about their need to forgive. Look, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father, that's who God is to every disciple of Jesus, He is your heavenly Father if you have trusted Jesus as Savior. But because he's your Savior and because he's your boss, take him seriously in what he says next. It's awe-inspiring. It takes your breath away if you take it seriously what Jesus says next. Look, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But, read the rest of it with me. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. What's that about? You're in the family of God. You have God now as your Father. You have welcomed and received by the grace of the death and the resurrection of Jesus the full pardon of your sins, and you're in the family. And now Jesus says, your Father became your Father, by loving you and forgiving you in that way. If you refuse to forgive others the way the Father has forgiven you, you won't enjoy His forgiveness as you live in His family. I don't think for a moment that Jesus says that you must proactively forgive everyone that's ever wronged you or God will never forgive you. If that were true, your salvation would be earned, and it's the death of Jesus on the cross that secures that gift for you. But once you're in the family of God, if you ever want to enjoy fellowship and peace with God, Jesus says, if you want to keep short accounts with the Father who forgave you this way, if you want to enjoy His peace and His ongoing harmony and peace of daily forgiveness, you must forgive others as He first forgave you. And if you've ever met a bitter Christian, Let me just ask you, have you? Don't look at them. (laughs) That won't help anything. My calendar's so busy already, I don't need parking lot counseling because you injudiciously looked right at them and wiggled your eyebrows in a meaningful fashion. Don't do that. But it's the greatest irony, and if I may, the greatest hypocrisy in the family of God. That you would turn to receive from God the death of his son that washes away all your sins and makes him call you no longer a servant, but his son, his daughter, his beloved friend, part of his family. And then you would turn to another and say, I'll I'll take his forgiveness, but you, you have no forgiveness from me. This is what Jesus is warning us against. This is what it means to Forgive. 
Forgiveness is simply this. You're giving up your resentment and your retaliate, your right to retaliation against the other person. It does not mean, and this is very important, it does not mean when you release another person from your own resentment and from your own claim to retaliation, it doesn't mean that trust is immediately restored. You once trusted them with the checkbook, they went out and ruined you. And in forgiveness, you extend to them mercy and grace. You give up that claim to ever be repaid. That's forgiveness. It doesn't mean you have to give them the checkbook again. Someday you might, but trust has to be restored first. It also does not mean, secondly, that there are no consequences to their actions. It means that you personally absorb the cost of this offense and you release them in your heart and mind from resentment and from you personally retaliating against them, but there may be many consequences that will and should flow into their lives, otherwise some people will never learn. It's a shame that this has to be said in church, but in these days of Me Too and Church Too, this needs to be said as well. Forgiveness, personal forgiveness where you release another does not mean that the authorities that God has established elsewhere outside of your personal relationship are ignored. This is why Mrs. Den Hollander's testimony in court as she gave her victim impact statement and she reflected and culminated a beautiful, hard, holy work where she took all the pain of her abuse at the hands of this man and used it to motivate her to become an expert in such crimes and become an attorney and wait for the time where she thought the cultural conditions were right for her to speak and for her to be believed. And that's why she was the first to speak and then about 200 other people said, he did the same thing to me. And now he's in the dock. And now a righteous judge presides over his future. And she gives her victim impact statement. And this Christian woman chose in that moment to give Larry Nasser the gospel. And to tell him to read the Bible he was bringing into court. And to understand that there was a just God who would deal with him if he didn't turn to Jesus for forgiveness. And announce to him that she, he could have from Jesus the same forgiveness that she enjoyed. And she said, and I forgive you as well. That's Christian forgiveness. She releases him from her resentment. She releases him from her claim to retaliation, but all of the things that correspond to his terrible criminal actions, those are still happening. Why? Because it's not about him and her. There's a judge involved. And the safest place for the people who have hurt you and harmed you is in the hands of God, the righteous judge who always does what is right. You see, here on earth, even when people are brought to trial, we all kind of collectively hold our breath and wonder whether this time justice will be done. Because we know the laws of evidence, because we know that people can be corrupted, because we know the caseload could simply be too great, the standard of proof too high based on the facts that we're able to gather. There's a terrible case some time ago of a promising young university athlete who took advantage of an unconscious girl, and the judge said, if I were to give him a long sentence, his life would be ruined, and he gave him a little slap on the wrist, and the entire world was rightly outraged. I believe there was even an effort to get rid of that judge. 
I have good news for you. The judge of all the earth, the, peop- the God who made every person in his image, he cannot be bought off. He has no bad days. His mercy and his justice and his holiness all coexist perfectly within him. He will always do what is right. What you're doing is you're releasing your resentment and retaliation, but they still have to deal with the righteous judge. That's why you can surrender your resentment and surrender them to God and rest. And someone will say, okay, I I, I get that concept mentally, but how actually do I do that? Let me give you some very practical direction that I gained over 20 years ago, and as I began in ministry, I went to a seminar, and a godly Christian woman was teaching a little workshop, and she gave us some version of this process. This is a very practical, step-by-step guided tour to you releasing resentment and your claim to retaliation. I find it by both instruction and example in the Scriptures, especially in the life of Jesus, as I'm going to show you in a moment. What do you do when you're wounded? What do you do when injustice slams into your life and you're thinking to yourself immediately, that's not right? First, you tell God all about it. Now, that may seem very obvious, but when you're really ticked, it's rare. Let me just ask you. Somebody wounds you, who do you tell? Tell your best friend, you tell your mom, tell the neighbors, a lot of people tell Facebook. (laughs) And you try to gain advocates to your side. And your buddies are going, yeah, you're right, he's a jerk. What, again, this nonsense, let me at him, I'll... And you tell everybody, and what that does is spread the poison. And this is why so many times people who have never met, meet each other, actually see each other for the first time in real life and already hate each other because their friends have been telling them about the other. And it's like, oh, it's you. Yeah, I know about you. I know what kind of person you are. Don't do that. That spreads the poison. That makes your, the people around you take up offense and resentment against them. Tell God all about it. You can find the great men of Scripture and most of all the man, Christ Jesus, who is God and became a man to save us, pouring out their heart to God. Secondly, as you tell God all that they have done, while you're at his feet pouring out all the injustice, you then move your heart and mind to your own forgiveness. And when I'm bitter, when I'm resentful, I don't want to think about my own forgiveness because I want to keep holding your offense over your head. This is humbling. I begin to realize that I am a sinner like you. And all we have on earth is one imperfect, messed up, sinful person wounding another. And that's where the comparisons start. Oh, yeah, well, I'm not saying I haven't sinned, but this guy, have you met this guy? And some of you even now are resisting this particular biblical teaching because you're saying, Bruce, if you knew my ex, if you knew my boss, 
If you knew what happened to me when I was a child, you wouldn't think it was so easy. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying it's right, and I'm saying it will give you your freedom because the only way for you to have freedom is to cut the chains of the evil that others have done to you. Otherwise, they'll drag you right back. That's why you have to tell God all about it, and as you're in fellowship with Him, you have to ponder the depth, the height, and the breadth of your own forgiveness, and then, finally, number three, you release your resentment against that person by turning them over to God. What's that sound like? If I could bring you into my prayer life from time to time, it sounds a little bit like this. It sounds like this, Father, it's Bruce again, and I'm mad again because I've just been reminded of something they did or they just did it again. And I'm mad about the fact that I don't think it's right for me to defend myself. I'm really upset about what this is doing to my reputation. I'm really grieving and feeling betrayed because I love them and invested in them so much and they've hurt me, they've hurt someone I love, and I'm really, really angry. And I just tell him all about it. And once I've purged my system of all of that anger and sorrow and helplessness and resentment, then I start thinking about myself at my worst. And I'm reminded that according to Scripture, when I was a sinner, Christ loved me. And when I was a sinner, God sent His Son to die in my place. And that if I were called to account for my own sins, if I had to answer them alone, I would be as condemned as anyone. And I would stand in greater judgment perhaps than the person who is so angered and disappointed me. And then I say, Father, because you have loved me and forgiven me in this way, I'm turning them over to you. I'm not going to try to make it right. I'm not going to seek revenge. I'm not going to wait and keep checking up to make sure you're doing your job. I'm turning them over to you. And I want to think peacefully about them as you in Christ think peacefully about me. Now, let's be honest. How many times might I have to do that? It depends on what they've done. It depends on how much harm it did. It depends on how often they keep doing it. But listen, the reason many Christians are unwilling, and some Christians they've even argued in print against this very idea, is because they think if I turn them loose, then everything gets messed up. Justice will not be done. Let me assure you, justice will always be done. You already heard in Scripture God's assurance of that. Every wrongdoer will be paid back without partiality. No preferences. The safest place for your loved ones and for your enemies is always in the same exact place, the hands of God. You drag them into God's courtroom in your mind, you leave them there, then they offend you again and you run back into the courtroom and you say, God, I've waited long enough, come here, I'm going to settle this right now. No, you keep bringing them to the Lord and you wait on the righteous judge who feels indignation every single day. He will not fail, he will not disappoint, he will not be late. 
And the people who have so wounded you will receive one of two things. They'll receive the justice that we all deserve, or they'll receive the mercy and forgiveness that you found in Christ. If you knew the depth of his justice, I assure you, you wouldn't wish it upon anybody. If you knew what it's like to fall in the hands of the righteous God who is the righteous judge who knows everything wrong and has promised to make it right, you wouldn't wish that justice upon anyone. You would desire for them mercy instead. How important is this? It was so important that Jesus was doing this very thing on the cross. Let me show you first, Peter. Peter is bringing you into the life of Christ, the whole life of Christ, and specifically as he is helping his readers understand what was happening in the mind of Jesus Christ on the day his creation put him to death. You think about injustice, you think about that. The creation is wickedly killing the creator. Men made in the image of God hate what they see before him in the Son of God, and they falsely accuse him, they torture him, they publicly shame him, and then they agonizingly, painstakingly kill him. They murder him in public. What was true of the life of Jesus in that moment? Your salvation is at stake. Here's what's happening. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. No one has ever been able to say that about any other person. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He did not retaliate, not even with words. When he was cursed and maligned, he returned blessing instead. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But look, continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What was Jesus doing on the cross? saying, Father, you know. You know this is wrong. You know I'm righteous. You know I don't deserve these accusations. You know I don't deserve these lashes. You know I don't deserve these nails. This death is not deserved, but I'm trusting you with it. And that's the reason Jesus didn't come down from the cross. That's why Jesus, though he told his disciples he could have many thousands of angels defend him in an instant, and I can imagine them looking down from heaven saying, why doesn't he say enough? Why doesn't he send us? He hung on the cross and bore that death because he was dying for me and he was dying for you. And he did that in trusting himself to the one God, his Father who judges justly. It goes on to say, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Our sins, not his own. It was our sins he was bearing that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And part of the righteousness of Jesus is extending love and grace to people who don't deserve it. By his wounds, you have been healed. See the substitution? Jesus gets the wounds, you get the healing. He gets judgment, you get mercy. So you treasure all that into your life. And when people actually wrongfully harm you when they are unjust and wicked and sin against you, at that moment you go to your father, you entrust him yourself and your enemies, your harassers, the people who hurt you. You entrust yourself and them to God who always does what is right and you say to the judge, I'm taking my hands off. I'm turning them over to you and I am trusting you who loved me so deeply and who is so very 
righteous, who lives and exists so righteously, I'm trusting you to do what is right. You can trust him with your loved ones. You can trust him with your life. You can also trust him with your enemies to release them and free yourself from their evil by turning them over to the judge. Let's pray together. Let's just make it as personal as you dare. I know names and faces came up. I've talked to people in tears or near tears after every service. Because this isn't abstract, it's not conceptual, it's real life for every single one of us. If you know Jesus, can I invite you to turn those people over to him? To put them in the Father's hands? Say, Father, here's what they've done. But they've loved done much less against me than I did against you. So I'm releasing them. And if you don't know Jesus as Savior, listen, this may be your time. My plea, my invitation is for you to give up those resentments and entrust yourself to God. To ask Him for His forgiveness, to turn away from sin and resentment and anger and bitterness and wrath and clamor and slander and all of those ugly things that are corroding you from the inside and turn yourself in to God as a sinner, as someone who's far, fallen far short of His standard and say, Jesus, here I am, a sinner, save me. If you do that this morning, call out to Him and ask Him in prayer that He would Forgive your sin and let us know on the connection card that that is your commitment to Christ this morning. Father, easier preached than lived, at least for me. Give all of your children in this room, services that met earlier, the grace to love as we've been loved, the grace to forgive as we have been forgiven, and to trust ourselves and everyone in our lives into your care, into your hands, that you, the great, loving, holy God, may do exactly what is right. Thank you that you will not fail to do it. Thank you that we can rest in you. We can make these commitments. We can bring these questions and these objections to you. We can pour out all of that anger, and you listen, and you know, and you love, and you care, and you understand, and you forgive. And we can trust you with everything, Lord, including this offering. We give from what you gave us first. We have nothing to give you that did not come from you. Thank you, Lord, for the generosity of your children who trust you day by day, week by week, who receive your blessings and give from what you've given, that the gospel and the good news of Jesus will be preached. Receive this offering, these prayers, these confessions, these broken relationships that you will restore. Receive them all in the name of Jesus, I pray.